Pick up your handouts. This is week number 10. It's hard to believe we're already 10 weeks into our study of the attributes of God. We're in the home stretch, and I hope this is stretching you and growing you. I know it is for me as I study it each week. Tonight, we get to talk about the holiness of God, and I tremble a bit at trying to do justice to explain the holiness of God. This is a massively significant attribute. It is one that I think is a lot is lost today on this topic, and so as we begin tonight, I want to Open us with a word of prayer as we dig into God's holiness. Father, we praise you that you are a God who is completely holy in all ways. God, I pray tonight as we look at your word, as we talk about your holiness, that God, that you would stir in my heart and the heart of these brothers and sisters just a sense of awe and wonder at your holiness and also such a awareness of our own sin and depravity and yet an awe at your grace that you, a holy God, would find a way to redeem us. So I pray that we would grow in our understanding of you this evening and that we would worship you in response, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you look at the handout here, you see that tonight it says God is holy, righteous, and just. So don't panic. It looks like three attributes tonight, but they really are all related. The core truth of all this is that God is holy, and from his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice are expressions of that and flow from that. So we're going to start with Psalm 99 tonight because you see all of God's holiness, righteousness, and justice all in one place. I want you to see it here. The Lord reigns where the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. And here it is the first of the three times we'll see it tonight. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You've established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them and you are forgiving God to them. But an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God, that's Yahweh Elohim, that we talk about on Sunday mornings, he is holy. And so I hope you see in here this emphasis of the greatness of God. And part of that is this three-time emphasis. Holy is he, holy is he. Yahweh Elohim is holy. And because he's holy, you see in verse 4, he loves justice. I mean, think about it. He loves justice. Therefore, he executes justice and righteousness. That means he, as we see in verse 8, he's an avenger of wrongdoings. These are all expressions of his holiness. And yet, sadly, I think in a lot of churches and even in a lot of our own lives, a lot of times we lose a sense of God's holiness. I love how A.W. Tozer describes it. He said, let's think a little about the Holy One and his creatures. We see that this Holy One allows only holy beings into his presence. Yet in our humanistic day, our day of a watered-down, sentimental Christianity that blows its nose loudly and makes God into a poor, weak, weeping old man. In this awful day, notice this phrase, that sense of the holy is not upon the church. The sense of the holy is not upon the church. I think Tozer is right on that, that many have lost a sense of God's holiness. I think in our own lives, all of us are susceptible in times to have lose a sense of God's holiness. And that has huge repercussions for how we approach God. So let's dig in and let's think tonight about the holiness of God. Let's start with what is God's holiness there on page two. Let's start generally. Generally to be holy means to be separate or to be set apart. So in Hebrew, the word holy simply means separateness. So in scripture, when you see things described as holy, we're not talking about God here, but things described as holy, they're set apart and they're set apart to God. So we talk about your own holy 
ground. This ground has been set apart for what God is doing. You have a holy Sabbath, a day that's set aside for God's purpose. So this is a holy place, a place set aside for what God has called his people to do. You see in the Old Testament, Israel being called a holy nation. It's not because they're great or perfect or amazing. They were set apart by God to proclaim his name. Even if some of your Bibles will say it's the holy Bible, it's set apart by God to communicate his truth. So holy just means to be set apart. When we talk about God is holy, what do we mean for God? What does set apart for God mean? Here's several attempts at definitions. Tozer, holiness means purity, but purity does not describe it well enough. Well, I love his honesty. He just stops there. It's purity, but I don't know what else to say, but that's not sufficient. And so I love his honesty. It's more than that. Herman Bavink says, purity, free from every stain, holy, perfect, and immaculate in every detail. God's holiness is revealed in his entire relation to his people, an election, in the covenant, in his special revelation, in his dwelling among them. I just love there how his, his holiness is revealed in everything that he does. His holiness is who he is, and it's expressed in many ways. Grudem, God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. I find, find that one very helpful because you hear me say when we talk about holiness in our life, holiness is not just not committing sin, it's putting on Christ's righteousness. So holiness is putting off something and putting on something. And for God, holiness is putting off all sin. He's separate from sin. It's putting on what's the greatest thing of all, his own honor, his own glory. And then A.W. Pink describes it well. Holiness here is the sum of all moral excellency is found in him. He is absolute purity. And I love this description. He's unsullied even by the shadow of sin. And so that'd be something fun for you to chew on tonight, how God is unsullied by even the, the shadow of sin. There's no hint of it with him. So here's our definition for tonight of God's holiness. God is completely separate from all sin and committed to showing the perfection of his nature in all that he says and does. Thus, all that God says and does is always completely pure and right. God is separate from sin and he's committed to showing his perfections, his actions to stem from who he is. Now we see in scripture God's holiness in so many ways. And like I say most weeks here, God reveals this attribute of holiness in many ways. This is not something that we're having to conclude ourselves. God tells us that he is holy. And you see it in many ways in Old Testament, New Testament, every genre of scripture talks about the holiness of God. But I want to highlight a few ways we see his holiness in scripture. First of all, we see holiness in his names. God is so holy. It's a word used to be a, a name for himself. Psalm 71 I will also praise you with a heart for your faithfulness, O oh my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. God is so holy, that's part of his name. Or Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy one is insight. Or in Isaiah 57, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabit eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy places and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So notice there, his name is holy. That's who he is. You see it also in the descriptions of God in scripture. Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Notice this, he's not just holy, he's majestic in holiness. Notice the struggle of our language to capture who God is. He's not just holy. He's majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Or Psalm 77, 13, your way, O God, is holy, but God is great like our God. And the answer is there, there is none holy like him. Turn the page, Isaiah 5, 16, but the Lord of hosts is, notice this, exalted in justice. So because he's holy, justice flows, and he's exalted in his justice. And the holy God shows himself holy and righteousness. And I love that because his actions are flowing from his nature. He's a holy God. Therefore, everything he does is holy, is just. 
Now, it doesn't directly use the word holy here, but you see it in these next two. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Remember, we said holiness is separate from sin. Therefore, he's not tempted, and he does not tempt. Or 1 John 1.5, this beautiful description, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. In other words, just another beautiful way of saying that God is completely pure, that God is completely holy. So we see God's holiness in his names. He's the holy one of Israel. We see it in his, these descriptions of himself, of how he's holy and he's light. We also see it in the declaration of spiritual beings. This one's fascinating. God is so holy that the angels and even the demons have to acknowledge his holiness. Isaiah 6, I love this passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Now just pause right here. So we read about the seraphim. Try to imagine what we are reading here. Our minds come up really short to picture this, but we, by God's grace, will see this one day when we get to heaven. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he, the seraphim, covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Now I have a hard time picturing this, but we're trying here. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. So all around God's throne are these crazy looking beings that God in his incredible creativity made who are crying out day and night, holy, 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 over and over. This is so who God is. It's not just his name. There's beings around the throne proclaiming over and over, holy, 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 when they see God. It's not just the angels and these seraphim who are proclaiming the holiness. Even the demons know that God is holy. Mark chapter 1, verse 24. This is a demon speaking to Jesus. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He is so holy that even the demons who do not trust him, who do not worship him, still have to acknowledge the fact that God is completely holy because that's just so who he is. And that's such a sobering reminder for us, friends, that knowledge of God is not sufficient. The demons have the right knowledge of God. They don't believe, they don't follow, they don't worship. But finally, we see the holiness of God, not only in his names, not only in his description, not only in the declaration of spiritual beings. You see it throughout scripture, the declaration of God's people and worship and praise to him, declaring his holiness. Psalm 103, King David here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all those within me. Bless his holy name. What a great thing for us as God's people to be proclaiming his holy name, that God is holy. In Luke 1, this is Mary's song of praise. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. You see it all throughout Scripture, God's people proclaiming the holiness of God. So we have our definition of holiness, God's separateness from sin, his commitment to his own honor. Everything he says and does is pure because he's holy. Let's kind of unpack that a little bit more now that we've seen it in Scripture. What does we mean when we say that God is holy? Several things. First of all here, <clears throat> only God is fully holy. Only God is untouched by evil. Nothing else is. I love how A.W. Pink says that he only is independently, infinitely, immutably holy. So only God is holy. There's nothing else in all creation that is perfect like him. Nothing else in creation can be called holy like he is. We are far from it. We were born with a sin nature. Now, it's not on your handout, but as you think about our lack of holiness, we see God's holiness. Remember, friends, we sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We are born, we're not born holy and then make ourselves wrong. 
We are born already unholy. We are born as babies with a sin nature. Therefore, we sin because we are born with an inherent sin nature. So we don't come out holy and then the world corrupts us. We come out unholy with a sin nature. Therefore, we live out our sin nature and we sin. Only God is untouched by evil. Nothing else is and we certainly are not that way. Scripture tells us that only God is holy. For Samuel 2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. A Revelation 15, 4, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you, notice you alone, no one else, you're distinct to this God. You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So only God is holy. Number two, all three persons of the Trinity are declared holy in Scripture. So you see this is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Father, John 17, Jesus praying, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me. So Jesus refers to God the Father as holy. Turn the page there to page four about Jesus, God the Son. Hebrews 7, for it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Who is he? He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated. Here's that definition of holiness. He's separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So the Father is holy, the Son is holy, but so is the Holy Spirit, right? It's even in his name. Romans chapter 1. Concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power. Notice this. According to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you think about the attributes. Go all the way back to week one, and we talked about the unity of God. That God is fully all the attributes all the time. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share these attributes. You don't have one part of the Godhead being merciful, one part being holy, one part being just. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are unified, and they share all the attributes all of the time. God does not change. He's immutable. He is unchanged. So because God is fully holy all of the time, number three, that means that all that God says and does is pure and right. Again, His righteousness is just an expression of His holiness. His words, His actions are just an overflow of His holy nature. I love how A.W. Pink says that holiness is the rule of all His action. Everything God has ever done in his sovereign plan for history, everything he's done in the church, in your life, is done because he is holy. Likewise, Grudem says it a little bit differently, but the same idea. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. So anything God does is right because he is holy. You see this in several places here. Deuteronomy 32.4, this is a... Great one to meditate on, memorize. Just I'd encourage you to chew on this one this week. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Friends, when life is hard and we face trials and hardships, this is a great truth for us to cling to. That whatever God is doing in our life, even if it doesn't make sense to us, God is holy and whatever he's choosing to do in our life is because he is holy and just and right. Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in some of his ways and all of his ways, and he is kind in how many of his works? In all of his works. God is holy and is expressed in all that he does, and he says, or Jeremiah chapter 9 here, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight declares the Lord. God practices love. God practices righteousness. All this is an overflow of his holiness in all that he does. Likewise, number four, because God is holy, everything that God requires is pure and right. Now, this is important, friends, because we live in a world and we live in a culture that wants to question what God has said. 
Whether it comes to human sexuality or gender or God's plan for the family or the priority and authority of the word, we are so prone to sit in judgment on Scripture. But everything God requires is pure and right. Psalm 19 here, this is describing the law of God. The descriptions of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired today than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Notice that God's law, his commandments are right. They're pure. They're true. They're righteous. Why? Because they're an overflow of his perfect holiness. You see in Isaiah 45, 19, I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. Or in Romans 7, 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Everything we see in Scripture is an overflow of the absolute holiness and goodness of God. And number five, this means that we referenced it earlier in a greeting quote, God is the final standard of what is right, not us, friends. We don't sit in judgment on Scripture. Scripture sits in judgment on us. God declares what is right. We don't get to say, hey, I like that about God. I don't like that about God. I'm going to follow that command, but not this command, or I'm going to pick and choose. No, God's standard is what is right. There's no standard outside of God himself, by which he is judged or he is measured. And so you see here how Tozer describes it. We must remember that justice is not something outside of God to which God must conform. Nothing ever requires God to do anything. Remember, he's independent. We saw that some weeks ago. If you have a God who is required to do anything, then you have a weak God who has to bow his neck to some yoke and yield himself to pressure from the outside. Then justice is bigger than God. That is to think wrongly. Justice is not bigger than God. Justice is an overflow of God's holiness. And so God is completely holy and completely right in all that he does. That turn the page to page five. That raises a really important question for our lives as people who struggle with sin. How does a holy God view sin? Now to answer that question, let's start with the flip side of the coin. That's number one, that God loves righteousness. This is the foundation to understand his view of sin. God loves righteousness. Hebrews chapter one but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have noticed this. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companion. As Mark Jones summarizes, so we'll simply put, God unchangeably loves good and hates evil. God is immutable. He's unchanging. So there will never be a time that God's like, well, I'm actually okay with that, or I wish they hadn't been so good. He always will love righteousness. And that means, number two, God will always hate sin. Again, this is, he's immutably, he unchangeably will always hate sin. You know, it says in several places here in Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. This is strong language. This is scripture. You hate all evildoers. Proverbs three twenty two. the devious person is an abomination to the Lord. Or Proverbs 15, 26, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. And in Colossians chapter three, this command to us, put to death therefore whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when you were living in them. God will always hate sin. God is immutable. He's unchanging. That means there will never be a sin with which he is okay. And I just had to chew on that one for a while, just thinking back through this yesterday and today, because in our own hearts, aren't we so prone to want to justify our sin? 
oh, it's not that bad, or my temper with the kids is not that bad, or that wrong thought is not that bad, or whatever. We so justify and, and try to make right the sins of our own heart, but there will never, ever, ever be a sin that God's like, oh, it's not that bad. There will never be a simple thought, word, action, feeling we have where God winks at us like, I like you, it's okay. God is immutable, and so there will never be a sin with which he is okay. Love how Mark Jones says it. Because God is holy, he must also be just. Holiness stands in complete opposition to sin, and justice displays such opposition. And so God will always hate sin. We see that in the scripture and the law. The whole law shows how much God hates sin. You think about the Ten Commandments or all the laws of Scripture, all the commands of Scripture are reminders of how God feels about sin. But friends, ultimately the cross itself shows us how much God hates sin. And we're going to talk about that more when we come to God's wrath in a few weeks. But for now, look at this quote from Pink. Wondrously and yet most solemnly does the atonement display God's infinite holiness and abhorrence of sin. How hateful must sin be to God for him to punish it to its utmost deserts when it was imputed to his son. Friends, if we want to realize how much God always hates sin, we think about the cross. The cross is not just a pretty symbol to make us feel good. It shows how a holy God feels about every sin. At least number three, God's holiness means he must punish sin. Again, we'll explore this more when we come to God's wrath in a few weeks, but for now, Romans 2. But because of your heart and impenitent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. Notice his judgments are righteous. Why? Because he is holy and he hates sin. Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God must punish all sin. Now turn the page where this leads to the fourth and final conclusion on this one that's so important for us. Either Christ takes the punishment for us or we must bear it. And something for us to ponder on this, I want you to realize this and think on this. I'm not sure many of us give much thought to this. God never forgives sin. He only forgives sinners. Now that's in a big distinction. God doesn't forgive sin. He forgives sinners. Every sin must and will be punishment. There's not one sin ever committed in human history that God has overlooked, swept under the rug, winked at, been okay with, Every sin is dealt with. And so God never forgives sin. Every sin has ever been committed and ever will be committed is and will be punished by God. It's either whether the person bears the punishment or Christ bears the punishment. There's no forgiveness of sin. There's only forgiveness of the sinner. Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, his holiness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that, and I love this, he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When God forgives sinners, he is still just because he's not overlooking the sin. He's just putting it on Christ. Every sin is punished either by the person, either on the person or on Christ. Therefore, we have that beautiful promise because he's just in the justifier. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I love how A.W. Pink says it again. God has often forgiven sinners, but he never forgives sin. 
and the sinner is only forgiven on the ground of another, notice another's capitalized there, of another having borne his punishment. For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. That's from Hebrews 9.22, if you want the reference that Pink is quoting there. Friends, this is the gospel. A holy God punishes every sin, but the gospel is Christ takes our punishment gladly from us. And so all of our sins are not overlooked. Our sins are dealt with definitively and finally on the cross. So every simple thing I've done, if you're in Christ that you have done, is dealt with on the cross. It's not overlooked. It is paid for in that moment by Christ. So in light of that, how should God's holiness change? If we really believe this gospel that another has borne our punishment, how should God's holiness change? Number one. It should lead us to recognize our own sinfulness and our own unworthiness, friends. We cannot recognize God's holiness without also recognizing how sinful and unworthy we are. Timothy George, who at a long time was the dean of the Beeson Divinity School up at Sanford in Birmingham, said this. He said, in all genuine spiritual experience, these two are inseparably linked. A high sense of God's majesty and holiness and the apprehension of radical depravity and human sin. And so I read that and pondered I can't help but think how much if you look at the Christian culture of the South or of our country, and you see so much excusing of sin, so many churches endorsing sinful behaviors, and so much just Christians living indistinct from the world, how much of that is because we have lost a sense of the holiness of God. Back to Tozer's quote on page one, there's not a sense of the holy upon the church. Tozer himself says it here again, when you talk about the holiness of God, you have not only the problem of an intellectual grasp, that's what we're struggling with tonight, how do we grasp holiness of God? But there's also a sense of personal vileness, which is almost too much to bear. When we understand how holy God is, we can't help but tremble when we see all the sin of our life, even just from today. Friends, if we really get the holiness of God, it breaks us. And I love this from Isaiah 6. This is a beautiful example of what happens when we really understand the holiness of God. Here, Isaiah got to see it in this vision And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is what we started with earlier. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook in the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, wow, this is amazing. I get to see God. Yeah, I'm going to jump up and down. That's not, I think our culture portrays when we see God, we get this light feeling and everything's wonderful. And Jesus is kind of our boyfriend, girlfriend we want to hold on to. That's not how scripture portrays when people see God. Look at what Isaiah does. He said, woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of uncleanness. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so when people encounter the holiness of God, it breaks them. And for you and I, the more we encounter the holiness of God in Scripture, the more God uses that to convict us of our sin and depravity, to show us our need for grace, to drive us back to the gospel, to realize all these sins have been put on Christ and to make us want more whole practical holiness Ourself. And that leads into number two. If the more we think about the holiness of God, number two, it should lead us to strive for holiness. Now, let me clarify what I mean here. When we talk, we have a positional holiness. We are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're positionally already holy. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less. So when the Father sees you, if you're in Christ, you are already holy in his sight. Because when Jesus died, your sin got put on Jesus and all of his righteousness got put on you. So when you approach the Father, he sees the righteousness of Christ. So positionally, you are already holy in God's sight. But when I'm talking about here striving for holiness, this is that practical holiness, that daily living for God, that putting off of sin and putting on Christ's likeness. And the more we understand God's holiness, the more we understand that we are positionally holy, the more that should drive us forward to want to practically live out who God already says and declared us to be. Therefore, in this, holiness is a communicable attribute. Remember back to the beginning? 
and communicable attributes, those attributes God does not share with us, but communicable, those attributes he shares with us in part. Only God is perfectly holy, but this is communicable. God calls us to pursue holiness, to be more like him. That means, friends, this is so important for us, pursuing holiness is not optional for Christians. Now, in the culture we live in, we kind of see, oh, I prayed a prayer, God's forgiven me, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to live like I want. That's the view of so many in the American church. And holiness is seen as some like second tier Christianity for the super Christians, those missionaries, those discipleship leaders, whatever. You see somehow holiness is that. That's not in God's view. If you are declared holy by God positionally, then practically he expects you to be striving by his grace to become more holy, to put off your sins and to put on Christ-likeness. Pursuing holiness is not optional for Christians. Leviticus 19, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, if you want to be really good in my sight, maybe you could try to be holy. No, this is a command to all of God's people time. You shall be holy. You must be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Turn the page. First Peter picks up on this and applies this to the church. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, he's going back to Leviticus here, you shall be holy for I am holy. So let someone think, okay, that was Old Testament law. It doesn't apply. Peter's saying, no, no. It's God's people now. Yes, you're forgiven in Christ. You, this still is important for you. Be holy as God is holy. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We go to Hebrews chapter 12, this beautiful text of God's discipline for those he loves, just verses 10 and 14. I encourage you to read the whole context later. For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time because it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. Why does he got discipline us? So that we may share his holiness. And then a few verses later in verse 14, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness. Notice this, without which no one will see the Lord. And so God calls us to do that. But friends, notice something here. Remember, any growth in holiness, which the big term we use is sanctification, it comes from God. I can't manufacture holiness in my life. You can't manufacture holiness in your life. It takes the Holy Spirit taking the Word of God. It takes community using the Word of God to help us grow in guidance. It's a grace gift from Him. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so God calls us to seek his grace. God desires to grow us in holiness. And he's not just saying, go be holy like I'm holy. Now go try harder. It's not white knuckle determination. This is God saying, I am giving you my grace to change you. I'm giving you my word to change you. I've given you my Holy Spirit to fill you to change you. I've given you the grace gift of community to change. Now run to my word, run to prayer. Use these means of grace that God gives and seek his grace as you pray, as you read the word, as you're in community to let God transform you to himself, sanctify you completely. I love what Mark Jones says. As we come to love Christ, not only for what he has done, but also for who he is, we will desire to be more and more like him in our thoughts, words, and deeds. But as you think about that and longing for holiness, notice this as well. We long for the day when we see God in all of his holiness and we are made completely holy ourselves. You know, if you think about what we said earlier, sanctification is from God. This is glorification. 
The day that we see God face to face, when the new heavens and new earth come and we get our resurrection bodies, when we get those resurrection bodies, friends, we will never sin again. When we go to heaven, we will never sin again. This growth, we were, were justified. God declares us holy. Sanctification is God making us practically more holy. But the day is coming when, by God's work, we become completely holy and we enjoy his holiness forever and ever. No temptation, no more falls, no more sin forever in his presence. Love Philippians 3 into verse chapter 4. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Friends, we get to long for that day when we're free of temptation, free of sin, and get to experience God in the majesty of his holiness forever and ever and ever. And that leads to the last point here. As we think about the holiness of God, friends, it should lead us to worship. God is beyond any of our comprehension he is completely holy and righteous and just, and that should lead us to want to praise him for who he is. Psalm 34, sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Or Psalm 99.5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. And then Revelation 54, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts. Have been revealed. There is a day there will be people around God's throne who will, from every nation, who will see His holiness and who will be made holy because of what Christ has done. Well, to think about God's holiness, I want us to, in our small group, just a minute, dig in on some questions. I want you to think about that quote from Tozer on page one. Do you think there's a sense of God's holiness lacking today? What evidence leads you to think that? As you think about the culture, the church, particularly the church, do you think there's a sense of God's holiness that's missing? In your own words, how would you define God's holiness? We talk about this word all the time. It's like the word grace. How in the world would you define that to someone? And how would you describe what holiness looks like in our lives? We all talk about, yeah, we need to pursue holiness. What does that actually look like? Think about how we approach God. How would a better understanding of God's holiness change how we approach him? How would a greater understanding of God's holiness change how we strive for holiness and fight sin? And friends, if we're all about community, how can we help each other grow in remembering and thinking on the holiness of God? We all get distracted and it's easy for us to not dwell in this. How do we help each other grow in pondering the holiness of God? So we have this all of who he is. And then finally, this is a question not for your smogness, but I want you to think about this week. This is a question straight from Wayne Greedham in his Systematic Theology. He asks us at the end of his chapter on God's holiness. He says, are there activities or relationships in your present pattern of life that are hindering your growth in holiness because they make it difficult for you to be separated from sin and devoted to seeking God's honor? Friends, God's holiness is not just an abstract thought. It should lead to very practical things in our life. So for you and your life, I want you to get before the Lord as you read Scripture, as you pray this week, and say, Lord, what are the things in my life that are hindering me from growing in holiness? And let the Lord show you what those are and grow you in that. So let me pray for us, then we'll dismiss to our small groups. Father, we are thankful that you alone are holy, holy, holy. Lord Jesus, you are holy, Holy Spirit, you are holy. And I pray that we would this week be reminded all throughout the week of your great holiness. And I pray it wouldn't just be abstract thoughts to us, but God, it would stir our hearts with awe and wonder that a holy God would welcome us into his presence. And so, Lord, I pray now as we go to our discussion groups, that, Lord, you would just guide us in what we talk about, that we would come away encouraged by our brothers and sisters as we think through your greatness, your holiness. I pray it would lead to practical desires in our own hearts to want more of your grace to pursue holiness in our lives as well. We ask it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So ladies, or sorry, couples room,